Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. All right, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So, uh, you know, the intent of this this podcast was was really to capture a lot of your your insight, um, a lot of our, our even some of our previous conversations just sort of rediscussed, um, but also obviously new ones. I think what I'd be interested to hear about is uh, you know I, I grew up where uh, abortion was it was kind of a hot topic, but it was it was sort of already the wave towards um, pro pro choice. I think that you know. You, when I was growing up, you sort of saw a heavy conflict there, but then that it, it almost seems like that wave is 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 maybe past and, and rolling forward, and the the very unpopular could also be the way you know where I was raised, but the very unpopular opinion seems to be um, pro life, and and you're one of the the crazy pro lifers type of things. Um, <laughs> so that you know that that was that was. Sort of my. I'm, I'm not a abortion clinic bomber. If that you're wondering, no, no, no. crazy. I, I, I meant, I meant that was a sentiment, right? That was the, the know, sort of my public know. sentiment, not necessarily you specifically. But, but anyway, <laughs> it's it's just interesting because I never lived in a in a world where that was that was clearly not allowed, right? That was clearly not accepted. Um, so, I, when it comes to growing up, when it, whether it's my kids growing up and. Uh, it's one thing to, to, to read about it, but it's another thing just to hear. I'd love to hear your perspective as you've seen the world shift. Um, I just like to hear your perspective on the whole thing with, with, with the recent Supreme Court um, uh, issues coming up here and, um, and, and all that's going on, the, the, the political uh, environment around that. I would just like to hear your, your thoughts, how, how you've seen you know, time go on. What's, what's your take on everything? Yeah. And uh, for listeners, I'm just going to turn the dial just slightly on what Pat said. It's who cares what Mike thinks. It's uh, we're trying to do in these podcasts what was considered in the church. It was called, well, actually, it's considered in any institution or any discipline. It was called received wisdom. And received wisdom, you know, uh, Alex Haley put it this way I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And so what we're trying to do here, and this will be a little more of a somber uh, podcast, is uh, hopefully we're just standing on the shoulders of giants that have come before us. And, uh, and that's important in this regard, that the, uh, first of all, beginning 500 years ago, there was a shift in, West, in the Western world away from receiving the received wisdom from the past. And it's a long story, not worth going into here. But with Descartes, the shift began to instead that I can figure out truth on my own. And the whole, even the phrase figure out um, became popular. And you see it all the time. You hear it all the time today. So we just want to be clear that hopefully we're willing to very well being corrected. 
received wisdom. And uh, the received wisdom uh, throughout the ages then gives us a way to think about what's going to be happening uh, with these hearings that are apparently about to begin in light of the uh, death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had a uh, phenomenally impactful uh, career on the bench for the United States Supreme Court. So that's why we just want to lay that out as we begin, because <clears throat> you can say what you want about uh, the hearings, which the hearings will not really be hearings. Um, they will be showtime. Because there is a litmus test and the, uh, the, the theatrics that go on now on Capitol Hill, especially with the advent of television, televised hearings, uh, mean that uh, everyone who comes before uh, Senate panels has been coached up. And because they're coached up, uh, they're coached up what not to say, what to say, so that you don't get tripped up. So it's basically theatrics and it's basically attempt to trip someone up in some way. If you're opposed to that candidate, and if you're not opposed to that candidate, if you're, if you're pro the candidate, the nominee, um, the effort is to say there's a tripwire there, there's a tripwire there. I want you to go this way. If I ask you this, I want you to. So um, I don't pay a lot of attention to the hearings because it's, the, it's theater. Now, having said all that, let's talk about uh, the litmus test. What do you think that litmus test is, Pat? Talking about for Supreme Court nominee. Yeah, for the new, uh, for the next Supreme Court judge, the, whoever the nominee will be, I don't care what the press says. I mean, that, the, there's a litmus test. And what is it? Are you talking uh, for popular, you know, public opinion? Or are you talking for actual them? them? No, I'm saying, what will the hearings be all about? There's, there's one. There's a litmus oh, test. Oh, got it. Uh, I would guess abortion. Abortion. Uh, listen, we don't want to sound simplistic here, but Einstein just say it should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Make it as simple as possible. The litmus test will be abortion. The first thing you saw with the death of Justice Ginsburg was a large... Um, demonstration in front of the Supreme Court for those who are pro-abortion. By the way, before we go any further, if someone says the uh, the press doesn't tilt the field, uh, you'll notice that it is pro-choice, often an anti-abortion, versus pro-life, pro-abortion. So the anti, the negative group, is are those who are for life, and the positive group is the one that is uh, literally pro taking the death, uh, taking the cause of the death of someone, call it what you like, thou shalt not murder. And uh, so that's, I find that fascinating that, uh, that uh, it tells you again how the faith community doesn't operate in the arenas and where cultures are made. Because if we operate in the, in the arenas where cultures are made, particularly in media, you would have a more level playing field. And that level playing field would say, uh, these people are pro-life. 
Now, as a result of that, if you stand for anything, you do stand against something else. If I say that, uh, you know, my name is Mike Metzger, then any other option I stand against because that's not my name. <clears throat> so you can't be you can't be pro anything without being anti something else. And so when they say they're pro-choice, that's fascinating to me because that goes back all the way back to that's a 500 year phenomenon in Western history. It goes all the way back to Descartes who said the key to growing up to maturity is the choosing individual. You should choose what to believe. And uh, that's had a lot of positive, but in this case, it's really played out in major ways in the abortion debate. So let me frame what we want to talk about this way, Pat, and then we'll uh, go. There's a couple of points that uh, are worth chewing on, but the biggest one is this. Now, I, I didn't grow up doing any hunting, I uh, actually did enjoy watching American Sportsman for some reason, Kurt Gowdy, but again, that dates me, I'm sure. Uh, I went hunting one time with my father. He went hunting one time. My father didn't like to fail in anything. I think he shot about a dozen times at a pheasant, and the person <laughs> he was with took it down in one shot. I, you know, my, my father didn't say anything. He just had a stone face, but we never went again. <laughs> uh, there's another funny story. So my dad and I went golfing one time. I had never golfed. I was in high school. He was kind of taking it out, and I beat him. We never went golfing again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Uh, All right, back to the story. Anyway, <laughs> so as I understand it, uh, there's a sort of an unbending rule for hunters, and it goes like this. If something moves in the woods, but you're not sure what it is, don't shoot. You can be brought up on uh, charges that will land you in prison. If something moves in the woods, you're not sure, you shoot, it's a child. So it's a hunter's maxim. Yet, that's exactly what the U.S. Supreme Court has essentially ruled in favor of. If you're not sure, go ahead and shoot. I say, now, where do you get that? Well, there's two significant abortion rulings uh, that have admitted to uncertainty. Uh, the first one is the famous one that most people are familiar with, Roe v. Wade, 1973. Gosh, that's a long time. 1973. So that would be, do the math here, 57 years ago? No, that's not right. 47 years ago? 47 years ago. So it's almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade. Now, it's fascinating, by the way, the, uh, uh, one of the central arguments for those who are arguing for the right to abort, their argument was this. Uh, unwanted children, unwanted unborn babies, those, those who are unwanted, are uh, more likely to suffer violence. And so you will actually see child abuse and violence against children reduced by aborting these babies. Google the statistics since 1973. Hmm. So you don't hear that argument anymore. Hmm. But the right to an abortion, as you know, was um, the ruling in part. <clears throat> the court wrote this. We need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. Ah, we need not 
Here's the reason why. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Hmm. Translate that, Pat. Oh my gosh. Well, it's not a problem. It's not our problem to deal with. It's, it's this. First of all, it's not our problem. It's, it's, you know, it's a kissing cousin to the Nuremberg defense in the Nuremberg trials mm. after World War II, where they were essentially saying, uh, I was just following orders, not yeah. my problem. Yeah. Um, yes, bears repeating. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology, uh, I find that, by the way, I don't know if they're tipping their hand there. Kind of an interesting order there medicine philosophy and theology at least theology still got in the game mm. but it comes in third are unable to arrive at any consensus the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer i want to say to that fair enough if, if that's the case and by the way they're also tipping their hand as to how the modern university has drifted from universities as they were founded with an understanding of a Judeo-Christian approach to education, which is commonly drawn up as a circle with the various disciplines that are mentioned here, medicine, philosophy, the rest, uh, wrapped around the center. And the center was the queen science. Science is the Latin word for knowledge. So the queen source for knowledge. And in the center, that queen science or queen source of knowledge was theology. So in a classical liberal arts university, which hardly exists anymore, you could resolve this issue because when those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy are wrapped around the queen science, theology, theology helps us come to a consensus because it defines the question of when life begins. And medicine and philosophy follow in her wake or revolve around her, be a better way to put it. They, she, they are planets that revolve around the sun and the gravitational pull of the sun determines their orbit. And in a liberal arts, in, in the modern university that was founded, that came out of the Christian faith, roughly 1100s, theology was the sun that radiated throughout the universe of all these disciplines, also provided a gravitational pull for them to rotate properly. And here's the court saying right now, when those trained in these respective disciplines can't come to a arrive at a consensus. Of course they can't. The judiciary at this point is in, not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Okay, fair enough. But what are they also then admitting in their ruling? They're admitting we're not sure. And that's not that important. No. <clears throat> they're going to say it's important, but they're saying we're not sure. So, conclusion... Think of the hunter's maxim. Right. 
Shoot. Were you free? Go ahead and shoot. We're not sure. So go ahead and shoot. That's staggering. Now they said we're not in a position to speculate as to the answer. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't know when Paul said, part of the role of the gospel is to, is to destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Of course, they're not in a position to speculate as to the answer, but they could look to received wisdom through the ages. And by the way, what's fascinating in this is you can't make it to the Supreme Court if you weren't trained in a school of law and school of law, like a school of medicine, it is, it starts with received wisdom. What's received, translate, what does received wisdom mean? Think of it like, for example, you go to med school. Learning from older doctors. Not just doctors, think institution. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where you're going. Well, doctors are individuals. So you, what if a quack is teaching you? You're going to go, yep. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess going through a, a teaching hospital is, is part there of that. There you go. That's an institution. The first teaching hospital in the United States was Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Teaching hospital, exactly right. It's called received wisdom. That means when you show up for class, it's don't, you don't choose what you're going to take. You don't choose what you're going to study. You don't choose what you're going to uh, take away. It's not like going to a grocery store where you have 30,000 options and you get to pick and choose and come up with your degree. Now, I know that today in the modern university, you can take, you know, economic systems and this and that and uh, good luck finding work. That's what you'll be pulling shots for a while at Starbucks as you sort out, what in heaven's name did I get for my uh, $170,000? The reason why you get into serious professions, and by the way, profession simply comes from, again, the Judeo-Christian understanding that any work you do is professing something about God, the universe, and the way work ought to be done. Profession. So professionals today are high, high, highly paid people like doctors and lawyers. But in the past, any work that was done the way it ought to be done, any, any work was considered to be a profession because you were professing. Now, to, in order to profess, for many of these professions, you had to go to a school. So if you go to a med school, it's received wisdom. And all that means would be that uh, it might say, now, there, were, there was work done near 100 years ago where they discovered, uh, and we're going to see what we learned from uh, Madame Curie, and we're going to see, and you, and you take all these and you go, ah, thank you, and, and it's received wisdom. And that's how you get through med school, and that's how you get through law school. So you don't go, hmm, I wonder how I feel about the law. I'm going to take, the first course we're going to take is, how do you feel about the law? Do you like it? <laughs> 
Or you could just say, it's all grace. We're not into law. <laughs> Sorry, just a little, <laughs> got a little prick there on the Christian community. Uh, no, what you do is you sit down and you are learn the rudiments, and that's called received wisdom. Now, received wisdom is here. So every Supreme Court judge is a graduate of a law school. And as a graduate of law school, they're always talking about precedent. And that precedent means received wisdom. And it doesn't mean that received wisdom is 100% correct. That's why you have rulings. But it does mean you take those things into account. So here is the Supreme Court saying, we're not in a position to speculate as life begins. Fair enough. But you would think received wisdom, if again, theology was treated as a queen science, would say, well, first of all, theology does talk about, actually makes a statement, a very certain statement about when life begins. God forms in the womb. And so, well, let's just say that, okay, well, we didn't study that in law school. Fair enough. That's the first important ruling. The second one is this. So, listeners, if this is all a primer on the United States Supreme Court institutions, and, and quite frankly, we know most of our listeners are evangelical. <clears throat> most of our listeners are younger than I am. They're more like Pat's age. You've grown up in this world. You're accustomed to it. Um, and you also probably, if you're an evangelical, you hardly ever hear the word institutions and received wisdom. You've been raised in a faith that is individualistic. And uh, I don't know, it's what I feel about it. I, yeah, I guess it's what's most important. Abortion is how I feel about it. Um, that would be considered in received wisdom nonsense. And by the way, we did talk about this, uh, or maybe we didn't, Pat, but um, the reason why the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, is important is social media right now does foster a view. Well, I don't know. It's mostly how I feel about it. And as uh, Tristan Harris rightly points out, when in fact truth becomes that negotiable, there's no way you can have a civilization. There's no way you can build a society. That's where we're heading. That's why we're heading towards, some would say, civil war. Well, I don't want to sound melodramatic, so we'll get back to the point of what we're talking about here. The first ruling, 1973, Roe v. Wade, the court acknowledges, we need not, re we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. W what? You're about to determine, make a ruling on what someone can do with an unborn life but you say, but the court says, we don't need to, to resolve that. But we're going to make a ruling, right. even though we can't resolve it. And the reason why is they say, we're not in a position to speculate as to the answer, 1973. Well, bad news. They did speculate in 1992. So you may or may not be familiar with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, and Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, Souter, and Stevens admitted to more than just uncertainty. They drifted into a metaphysical, mysterious language that to this day I still find astonishing for men and women trained in law. And here was the ruling. 
I'm quoting straight from the ruling, by the way, this Pat. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Wow. <laughs> oh, my. That merits one more time. <laughs> I like Peter Noonan and Herman's Hermits. Second verse, same as the first. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. What do you make of that? I mean, it sounds like (laughs) they consulted the chief philosophers there and did not not accept the unknown anymore <laughs> that's a wow the judeo judeo-christian understanding of what demarcates us from the animals animal kingdom is human conscience conscience is a latin word science means knowledge con means with so if you ever have chili con carne it's chili beans con with carne carnivorous meat so chili con carne is generally ground up some kind of meat and uh, beans. Chili con carne. Con science. Conscience means with knowledge. Something comes with our knowledge that goes beyond medicine, philosophy, and all the rest. We just have a, it's called a moral intuitive sense of right and wrong. And in for thousands of years, for the people of God, Conscience is what informed their knowledge of everything else. It, 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 by putting it at the center inside of theology, it, it, it governed, it created the orbits of medicine and philosophy and biology and mathematics and business and blah, 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 on it goes. And so I find that the, the, the ruling at the heart of liberty, the heart of liberty, the heart or the center of liberty. That's fascinating. Because again, in a in the classical setting up of a university, and by the way, even notice university, diversity of disciplines orbiting around uni, the sun, one. University. Today, as when my son and you, Pat, went to the University of Maryland at the same time. I mean, I walked in uh, and we looked at all their recruiting materials. And the first thing that stood up was every fifth word was diversity and all their marketing program. Uh, diversity, 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 and diversity. It's basically, it was planets with no orbits. I walked down the campus. Over here is biology, over here, physics, over here, business, and these are all planets completely operating on their own. It's, it's the, it is pretty much the dismantling of what a coherent education used to be. I was talking with, uh, yeah, a man, actually, you know, him, but he's, uh, you know, he's in med school. He's doing a fellowship uh, right now out in Phoenix, uh, Indian who came to faith, uh, uh, out of the Hindu faith. And, and he said, you know, I look back, I realized, uh, 
I never got an education that, that things were pulled together. There was any coherence to it. I just learned stuff. As he put it, he said, now I learned math, but I never learned Shakespeare. And now I begin to meet some doctors who they were, their practices informed some of this great literature in the humanities that I never read. Well, of course you didn't read. You were stuck in the science building all the time. Science, we don't care. We don't have any interest in that. So first of all, they say at the heart of liberty. So once you define it's no longer at the heart of the universe is where we discover ideas about our existence and meaning and the universe and the mystery of, of human life. It says instead at the heart of liberty. Fascinating. Why at the heart of liberty? Do you remember? There was another revolution going on when the American Revolution was going on. Familiar with that one? No. Isn't this great? These podcasts, <laughs> for the average, you know, American listener, Americans, they they learn so little about history. What well, was called? The, it was called the French Revolution. Okay. And the American Revolution was a triangle of liberty, but liberty can only be sustained by virtuous people, and virtue can only be sustained by religion, and can only be sustained by liberty. But liberty can only be sustained by virtuous people, but virtue can only be sustained by religion, but religion can only be sustained by liberty. See, there is this, this circle, round and round, never-ending. The French Revolution took religion out of the equation. So it's basically liberty. And uh, liberty comes because we are we are virtuous. We'll, we'll make the right decisions. Well, are you familiar with how the French Revolution turned out? Uh, not, not as well as ours did. Yes, in fact, it's known for its technological innovation. The, the guillotine. guillotine. Yeah, that's right. Just as Nazism was known for its technical, technological innovation because power divorced from any sort of moral universe, it became too expensive to shoot Jews. Those bullets cost money. So a technological innovation was the gas chamber. So the technological innovation and the the slaughter of the French Revolution is what drove, in part, as it subsided, Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman, to come to America to say, answer this question, why did this one turn out better? Why did the American Revolution, so 1830s, somewhere in there, he comes to the United States for an extended um, travel, travels all over. He even goes, he makes us all the way all the way to uh, Saginaw, Michigan, where I, I lived for nine years. Um, I mean, pretty extensive. And he discovers these underpinnings uh, in the, that are supported by the Christian faith. By the way, he also discovers something emerging in America, and he coins a word for it. He goes, the average American is becoming an individualist. That word has never existed before. So Tocqueville sees that, that uh, liberty 
which was the, the heart of the French Revolution, individual liberty runs the risk now of becoming the heart of what happens in America. Now, let me read the Supreme Court justices again. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. I think, therefore I am. I determine my existence. I think my way to truth. Received wisdom? Ha! I think my way to truth. I'm not going to spend any time on it today, but this has so infected American Christianity. Where do you go to church? Where I want to. How often do you go? When I want to. How much do you give? What I want. What about that? I'll damn well give what I want to give. Well, what do you make? It's none of your business. Uh, why don't you get involved? Well, if I have time. My daughter works for a uh, uh, church, and she, you know, she's discovered what I did as a pastor. What drives you crazy is it might be 60 people sign up for something, but at the heart of liberty is the right to define your own schedule. And so everybody keeps their options open to the last second. And I was telling Jennifer, you got to get used to it. Fact of the matter is we put something on. There might be 20 people who said they're coming and you start getting, back then we didn't get the emails, but you get the emails beginning about an hour before, hey, I can't make it. This is all insidious individualism that says, I reserve the right to the last second to keep all my options open. Liberty. That's not what the Bible defines liberty. So at the heart of liberty, we're sort of parsing out uh, parent, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. At the heart of liberty, yes, more of a expressive individualism, French view of liberty is the right. Oh, that's interesting, the right. That's straight out of Descartes. To define one's own concept of existence, of meaning. Now listen to all this soars. Of the universe. <laughs> And the mystery of human life. So Roe v. Wade in 73 said, we're not in a position to speculate. What did they say in 1992, Supreme Court justices? Yeah, they are. We are in a position to speculate. And we're saying, we're not sure. Go ahead and shoot. So where does that lead us to today? That's where we're at. Well, <clears throat> where it leads today is at the very least, the American, American Christianity could stand a refresher course on human conscience. And here's why. Again, human conscience, first of all, human conscience is, is laced through the Great Commission if you understand that the Great Commission is a reiteration of the cultural mandate and the Great Commandment. But the average Christian doesn't know that. So they don't see how conscience is laced through. Hence, the Great Commission is very much about nurturing and guiding people toward becoming people of strong, healthy, clear conscience. Uh, this is why it's important, Pat. Conscience 
is a sacred capacity in human beings that cannot be toyed with. Here's what I mean by that. There are four types of conscience mentioned in the Bible. There's one that's called healthy or good. Paul said he lived his whole life with a clear conscience. It is basically you're doing what you ought to do. You may not know everything you ought to do, but when God makes you aware of it, boom, you change. The quickest example is David was called a man after God's own conscience, and uh, he screwed up royally with Bathsheba and Uriah and the rest. I mean, it's horrible, so I'm not minimizing it, but when Nathan the prophet comes and says, you're the man, David doesn't say, well, what business is is it of yours? I have the right to define my own existence and meaning in the universe. Or uh, you're really invading me, man. Like you, you, you didn't, did you ask? I mean, you're really, what GD business is this of yours? He goes, you're right. I confess. And if you read Psalm 22 and Psalm 51, here's a man who repents in one of some of the most deep, profound ways, a, prof- a confession of sin that I hardly ever hear today. We've joked before, but we live in an amazing time where Christians hardly sin against Christians. It's really, this is really, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Uh, Because no one's ever called me to ask my forgiveness for something they've thought or said or done. So I know everyone I know has never sinned against me other than my wife. We, we have a habit of confessing to one another, but nobody else does. So apparently nobody can nobody really sins anymore. Pray receive Christ and bingo, bango. That's, maybe that's why I feel so out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying I have, yes, my kids, we made it a rule in our house. We don't apologize. We don't say we're sorry. You confess. You ask forgiveness and you hear that you're forgiven. You ask my kids and they will tell you <clears throat> their dad would go to people and ask forgiveness. He'd screwed up. If you don't, your conscience becomes marred. It becomes scarred. It becomes dull. It goes either way. It can become what's called a pharisaical, arrogant conscience where you go, don't tell me what I've supposedly done. It's none of your GD business. I know what I'm doing. More than likely, though, it is the uh, therapeutic wounded conscience. And the wounded conscience is, uh, um, you can't go there. That makes me feel really insecure and defensive, and I will lash out at you. That was the problem in the Corinthian church. Well, what would scar someone's conscience? Murder. There are no, it's hard to get reliable statistics on this, but somewhere north of 50 million Americans are missing off the planet. They were aborted. The majority of Americans have either had an abortion, have facilitated an abortion, or know someone who has an abortion. You can't take life. Thou shalt not murder. 
without it scarring your conscience, without it scandalizing your conscience. And a scandalized conscience simply goes, I, I, I can't go there. I can't go there. That would mean I'm a murderer. Well, then how could Paul go there who was a murderer? How could David go there who was a murderer? Because both said they lived their life with a clear conscience. That means you can do heinous things with a clear conscience, but the moment God speaks to you, you changed. And because we have, even in the faith community, no one hardly hears anything about uh, confession. Now, some of us do it corporately in some churches, and, and that's fine, but, it's, but they really confuse all the scriptures about the two types of confession. That's too long to get into here. There's a confession that's often, we use verses that talk about confessing and coming to faith, but we rarely use verses like the first John 1 that it says, well, now that you're in the faith, you're actually going to start confessing more. Um, that distinction is hardly made in the church anymore. And, and while corporate confession is good, it's designed to be a model for how Mike goes to Pat, for example, to say, forgive me. And here's why. And I'm, I'm, I have a sense that that hardly happens. So once you have a scandalized conscience, then what you have is a generation, then a second generation that hardly thinks about it. And here's a couple of reasons why. Uh, and here, I think I've seen what I call a scandalized conscience. So I traveled to the Soviet Union before the wall fell. And there was, uh, um, I can't remember the name of the agency that you had to go through, the tourist agency. Of course, you'd be assigned a guide. And the guy was taking us through, it might have been Moscow, and just, just offhandedly mentions, and the average Soviet woman has six to seven abortions in her lifetime. What? Wow, yeah. It's birth control. Wow, I had never, I never knew that was a thing. And the millions who have been aborted in China with one baby policy, often forced abortions. You simply cannot murder that many people and not have a coarsening of your conscience. Coarsening meaning what? What do I mean by a coarsening? Uh, tightening, narrowing. Not quite. You ever um, use your hands a lot, like built something with your bare hands? Mm, oh, sure. And your hands get caught. Yeah. Okay. You get calloused. Yeah. That's what happens. It gets calloused. You don't even feel it anymore. Uh, now, calluses are helpful if you're you know, ripping shingles off a roof. But if you're ripping an unborn baby out of a womb. Fascinating study. I don't know if it was after Spanish-American War or World War I. I'm not. I cannot. You can Google it and find out. But... <laughs> They began to, post-war, studies were done, remarkable number of soldiers died having never fired a bullet. Their, their ammunition clips were full. And psychologists determined it wasn't human nature to shoot someone. You had to train someone to get used to shooting someone. And they uh, developed training it would simulate killing someone. Now, 
in a, in a view of the of institutions giving to Caesar what is Caesar's in the, the idea of a just war or war, that's called killing. And when the, uh, when the government mandates that you have been drafted in, you're going to Vietnam and you're going to shoot, that's not what the Bible calls murder. The Hebrew word in the great in the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder. And murder is when, apart from the sanctioning by legitimate government for le to legitimate means, say to destroy fascism or Nazism, murder is when at the heart of liberty is your right to define your own concept of existence, meaning, universe, mystery of human life, and you come up with this answer. That ain't life. So I'm going to murder it. And regardless of uh, how you choose to define that, C.S. Lewis was right. When you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. So Mike, are you, it, really for the splinters piece there, are you talking... Uh... Your conscience gets really mangled it gets coarsened it gets ripped up sure and and do you see that anywhere or is that just yes, um, yes. So how do you see that uh we can't it becomes a litmus test but no one but uh shifting of opinion nope nope um uh, it is my body it is my right i have a right to my body and uh, there's really, you re we can't really have much of a conversation about that today. And I think it's because the majority of the population in some way has either been impacted by or had an abortion or set up an abortion or funded or facilitated or what have you. And what you're looking at is it doesn't take a brain surgeon to know. So you're saying I'm a murderer. Well, try having a conversation about that. You can, if you're a person of clear conscience, you could say, because in fact, gossip is also linked in the Bible to murdering someone, character assassination. And uh, you should be able to have a, a conversation with someone to ask them whether they just murdered that person's reputation. There will be consequences from that. And a person of clear conscience would go, I want to know about that because the last thing I want to do is destroy myself. And there, in the Bible, there are there are several people have pointed out that said they have a seared conscience. The, the Greek word there, pretty graphic, cauterized. What's cauterized mean? It's like the burning, like you cauterize a wound, burn the wound shut. You burn the blood supply shut. You kill it. It was developed during the Civil War when there was... By the way, did you know that at the end of the Civil War, I just read Shelby Foote's, this is my, one of my COVID projects, is three massive volumes in the Civil War. Post-Civil War, one out of every five veterans in Mississippi was wearing a prosthetic. Wow. Medicine couldn't keep up, so what they did was uh, hot tar... They said, Pat, we can't save your leg, but you're going to die of gangrene unless we saw your leg off and dip the end in hot tar. Mm. We cauterize it. If you can survive that, you'll, you'll live. 
a cauterized conscience is dead. Now, when it's dead, you reduce the level of animals. When you reduce to the level of animals, if a bird on a wet day flies down and pulls a worm out of the ground, that's not murder. The bird does kill the worm, but that's not murder. The reason it's not murder is the bird has no conscience. Animal kingdom doesn't have conscience. They just operate in the rhythms of nature that God created. But when human beings pull an unborn baby out of a womb, that's murder. And you can't do that repeatedly or even know it's going on repeatedly and just go, hey, I I don't want to. I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to be judgmental. That's what's, uh, that's the language of someone whose conscience has been defiled at the least, but is on its way to becoming seared or cauterized, where you just shrug. And a cauterized conscience will react like an animal, says Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Well, there you go. We're going to go back to back alley abortions and it's the end of the world and abortion is going to be uh, Roe v. Wade's going to be overturned and life as we know it will end. At all costs, we must get a pro-choice anti, uh, anti-life, I'd call them, candidate, period, period. That's it. Well, we have to go through hearings. Everything else is window dressing. That person, if we suspect we're going to go through everything they've ever written, we're going to comb through their files. If they are pro-life, we're going to trip her up. Period. How can you say the almost the, the meaning of the universe hangs in this thing on one issue? Well, it's because Roe v. Wade We can't speculate on this, so go ahead and shoot. Planned Parenthood? Well, actually, we can speculate. And at the heart of liberty, you have the right to define your own concept of truth. So go ahead and shoot. I'm just telling you, as someone who wants to be faithful to God and what he's revealed, you can't do that without marring your conscience. And at the very least, now, by the way, and and I believe in institutions. So the reason, part of the reason that I thought, I think these two rulings are, are not helpful, are wrong, is that if through the legislative process of states, they determine there is a right to an abortion, well, that's, that is the people speaking. But Roe v. Wade took the legislative process that was underway in dozens of states on this issue and simply said, forget it. We're going to overrule everybody. Here is from the top down, nine unelected officials decided for a country of three to 400 million people. So first of all, it's judicial usurpation. The Supreme Court is now becoming a legislative body 
And once it's a legislative body versus a uh, its role in the as the judiciary ruling on legislation, you now have the stakes are so high that we've got to get a legislator in there that will preserve our. And I don't think it's overstating it to say that is the issue because I didn't see protesters or I didn't see the day that Justice Ginsburg passed away. All you saw were hundreds of people laying down on the ground to demonstrate that their right to an abortion is now at risk. She will rule, the next Supreme Court judge, will rule on hundreds of cases, maybe even thousands in her lifetime. Why that one case? Why that one right? I think the Bible tells us. I think the God gives a, a wider lens on this thing. And we are a nation that has scarring our conscience and the faith community by and large but not completely is acquiescent to it or silent on it or ill-prepared to speak into it because we no longer understand human conscience and as you know apostle paul a murderer who came to faith said he lived his whole life with a clear conscience because he didn't know before then but as soon as he discovered like as he might have discovered in reading these rulings, reading these rulings saying, that, that doesn't make any sense. And to have the Supreme Court justices would go, yeah, you're right. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. We're going to repent and, re and we're going to do a, a 180. Bang. He did a 180. Hence, he would say this, and we'll close here in Second Corinthians. He said, this is why I'm, I'm paraphrasing Second Corinthians 5. This is why in my ministry, said Corinthians 4, I'm sorry. We target human conscience. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience. We target human conscience. Because unless human conscience is good and clear, which again, I repeat, you can have a good conscience and do horrible things. But a person of good conscience, once they recognize this, they repent full-breasted repentance, not this therapeutic, well, you know, let me process that and think and let me get back to you and I'm sort of working it through and remember I was raised this way and it's hard for me to talk and, and, you know, and I don't have the words yet, blah, 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 blah. No. Just, I was wrong. I am a man of unclean lips. I repent. So perhaps salvation begins in the household of God. Where the church had a very practical step, churches would begin to practice again, not the second type of confession, not the first type of confess and believe and you'll be saved, but what scripture talks about is confession that is appropriate for the saints to God and to one another so that we would restore and become people of good conscience. And I think if we were people of good conscience, we'd be absolutely horrified at these two rulings. Horrified. And would begin to 
address them in ways that are more constructive than what we've seen to date. And we'll leave it at that. Thank you.